0: The aim of Professor Giro Meisenbach's research is to understand how excitable cells are arranged into functional circuits, and how the operation of these circuits informs behaviour. In this podcast, the professor begins with a discussion of DNA and neuroscience, and then talks about his experiments on the brain of the fruit fly. What is physiology? Physiology is a very ancient discipline. It's the study of how biological systems work. In more recent times, there's a fancy catchword for it that's called systems biology, but it's basically just a reinvention of physiology. Physiology is how living matter gives rise to biological function, that I think would be the definition that I would use. It sounds like a very broad scientific area. Yes, I think it's the foundation of most of biology and most of medicine. Of course, we all understand that ultimately the world is made out of uh, out of molecules, and that uh, life, like any other process, has to be understood in physical and in chemical terms. But at um, sort of at, at the level where the interesting things happen that distinguish living matter from non-living matter, it's not always informative to really look at the level of atoms and molecules. So, for example, if you were to understand a nervous system, you would, you may never be able to achieve a description in full chemical atomic detail. And even if you could achieve such a description, you might not be able to understand it. Or it might just be that what you create is just another copy of the system that you're trying to study. So I think explanation always involves a degree of simplification. You have to achieve this reduction of a system to its essentials, and physiology is trying to do that for living systems. Not just human life? Not just human life. No, no, there's plant physiology, there's animal physiology. It's essentially the interesting things that happen when you start to build complex, self-organizing systems with lots of feedback loops. And what area has your own research been in? I'm a neuroscientist, so I'm interested in how the brain works and how the physical properties of nerve cells and their connections give rise to the richness of the mental life of animals and also, of course, our own. If one were to take DNAs as as the foundation, what is the next step? It's more informative to try and look at these things in, in evolutionary terms, not such like that you say, oh... This is sort of the instruction booklet that's written in DNA and now let's open the booklet and read it and then see how complexity of an animal unfolds from that. We start with DNA and then we make cells and then we organize the cells into tissues and the tissues into into organs and then the organs into bodies and the bodies into societies. That's how many people commonly think about these problems. But it's probably more informative to try and think about how it happened that such complex systems evolved in the first place, and there most people think that life began with some form or another of a replicating chemical molecule. Okay, so a molecule that could reproduce itself. In all likelihood, these early replicators were made out of RNA. Okay, so there, there were basically small devices of, of, of small assemblages of molecules that could make copies of themselves and initially they were very very simple they had no help so the reactions were very very slow and then one could imagine that they hijacked other components so as for example it, it became possible to translate a sequence of RNA into a protein so that the device encoded another device, a protein, that then sped up its own reproduction, that would be a selective advantage, okay? And then it may have become a selective advantage to add or to sequester this replicating unit away from the ocean of all the other things that are floating around That You incorporate it into a tiny sac, so you put a membrane around it, so you can control the influx of metabolites, and also if you make something that's very good and helpful to you, you can contain it. So again, another selective advantage, and you might have the first primitive cell. Of course, nobody has been able to really do insightful experiments, and in that much of this is, is speculation, because we can't go back that far. But in, in general, this is, this is, I think, a, a very interesting way of looking at biological systems. And it's also interesting to look at, for example, the evolution of the nervous system, which is also of a, an organ of staggering complexity. The complexity that's so staggering that some idiots think it can only have been put together by an intelligent, or even a super-intelligent, god-like creature. Which of course is nonsense. It's a product of evolution, just like anything else. So it's important to look at the evolution of the nervous system in similar terms. Yeah. And what kind of timescale would we be looking at for the nervous system, for instance, to have evolved? I think the timescales are very, very hard to really pin down. I would, I would still say, certainly billions of years. So some people even think that. So there's, there's no discontinuity between the emergence of what we would recognize as a nervous system and say the, the kind of information processing that a very, very simple living thing such as the bacterium E. coli that lives in our guts does. So these devices swim around. They they are not just pushed about by Brownian motion. They, they actively seek out amino acids, for example. So they have little receptors. And and as they swim around, they can measure whether things are getting better or things are getting worse. And depending on what they measure, over an integration interval of maybe three or four seconds, they decide whether to turn away from where they're going, whether they change direction, or whether they keep the direction in which they're heading. So it's an important, essential form of information processing, of of active exploration of your environment, that even these extremely primitive living things do. So the person who, who has done a lot to understanding this kind of motile behavior of bacteria, a biophysicist at Harvard called Howard Burke, he actually says he considers himself a neurobiologist, except that the brain that he studies is incredibly small. How can we study neuroscience? I think the discipline of neuroscience has changed quite a bit in the way the problem is being approached. I think little more than a hundred years ago, people would look at things like nervous systems mostly in anatomical terms. This was the golden age of just the description of the cellular arrangements, these beautiful drawings that we all still admire in books that people with considerable artistic talent and considerable scientific talent made by hand. Then later on came sort of the age of physiology where people stuck electrodes into various parts of the brain and picked up the electrical signals that underlie all of its function. I think we are still to a large extent in that phase where people look at at these electrical signals one at a time. And now slowly that's changing as well, that people try and and look at the signals that are generated by more than one cell, although everybody accepts it almost as a truism that the function of the nervous system depends not on the actions of individual cells, but on assemblies of cells. It's been very, very difficult to study them. So what is the nervous system? I think it's an information processing device. Your research at the moment, what are your experiments about? We work at sort of the interface of of cells and systems. We would like to understand how the adaptive behaviour of an agent, be it a bacterium or, in our case, a fruit fly, arises from the functional properties of the individual cells and the patterns in which these cells are connected and influence each other's activities. For a long time, neuroscientists have sort of thought about nervous systems in terms of input-output relationships. So you take an animal and you show it a, a certain image or you give it something to smell or you <coughs> clap your hands and then you see what what kind of behavior this sensory input elicits, right? So it's sort of a, a very reflexive view of the world, right? So every everything that the animal does is somehow... Triggered from an external stimulus, it's then transformed by the nervous system, and then leads to the activation of the muscles that you can see as as the behavior. That stimulus is thought to produce. So you clap your hands, and the animal runs away. And and, and that point of view is still you you can still sort of see it quite frequently in in publications when people write that. They want to understand how a sensory stimulus leads to the appropriate action, and all that. So it's, it's again this sort of reflexive input-output thing. But of course, many of the behaviors that we generate and also that animals generate are not driven by sensory stimuli. They are not reflexive. They are self-generated. We are we are active agents. We decide what we want to do. I mean, you don't. You're not a robot that's triggered by whatever the environment does to you. You you generate an internal model of the world—that's of course based on your experience—and that that's constantly cross-referenced to the outside world. But you're an autonomous agent; you control your actions. You translate these sensory-motor images into into the behavior that you can observe. And we would like to understand how that works: how you generate this model of the world that allows you to act properly, how you select your actions, how you how you choose one option one thing to do over another and how you can learn from experience to influence those choices so that if you make a mistake, you decrease the probability that you make it again. But when I say how you do it, we are not really interested in how humans do it because we think that would be too complex a, uh, a problem. We study a much simpler nervous system, that of the fruit fly. And how can you test for self-generating behavior when you're not providing a stimuli? So we use... Essentially, two approaches to studying the nervous system. Traditionally, and as briefly sort of talked about the history of the subject, I always said, Oh, people first looked at the anatomical structure, then they looked at individual cells, now they are trying to look at the, the function of assemblies of cells. But notice that I always use the word look, so most scientists just observe brain function still at the moment. And we do that too, to some extent. We breed genetically modified flies in which we can program certain classes of nerve cells in the brain so that whenever they become active, they emit a flash of light. So you can basically sit at the microscope and watch the fruit fly, think, if you want to go that far. But again, it's it's just passive observation. And that observation involves two critical elements. So it's light, we we use optical imaging to, to look at these activity patterns, and we use genetics that allows us to put our light-emitting devices only in specific classes of neurons. How is it that you've identified which neurons you want to put these emitting devices into? Because they either have a suspected function that's interesting to us, or they are located in a region that's interesting to us. There's various criteria in which you can select the population of neurons that you're interested in. But in each case, what we, what we do is we hook our light emitter up to a gene that's normally typical for the cells that interest us. So, for example, if you're interested in, in cells that produce the signaling molecule dopamine, these cells, but not other nerve cells, will usually make the machinery that is required for making and for packaging dopamine. And that machinery is proteins, and proteins, are of course, encoded by genes. So if you can take the regulatory element that controls that the machinery for making dopamine is produced only in these dopamine cells and you take that element and couple it to your light emitter gene, then you can produce a light emitter only in the cells that make dopamine so if you then look down your microscope into the brain of the fly only the dopamine producing cells will light up and you can study their function in virtual isolation. So do you observe the function whenever it occurs naturally. In many cases, you have to trigger the... the, So we we are still guilty of that that approach that I've just slammed a little bit, namely to put on sensory stimuli and then to look for responses in the brain. What we've also developed now is to try and get away from this paradigm of just looking at nervous system function, but instead trying to control it. And again, we use our two elements. We use our genetics. So genetics allows us to single out the cells whose function we want to control and then we use light to actually activate the cells. So it's as if, as if the brain was a city, okay, and within that city, let's say, a, f- a fly's brain has 100,000 cells, so let's say there's 100,000 households in, those, in, in, in the city. You want to control some of these households, so you want to send a message to some of these households. What you would do is, you would put a radio mast somewhere on a hill near the city And you would equip only the households that you wanted to hear your message with the receiver. Then you broadcast your signal all over the city. But the radio signal cannot be decoded by everyone. It can only be decoded by the households that actually have the receiver. So what we do is something very similar. We put a genetically encoded receiver for a message, that in our case is an optical signal, only in some of these cells. So for example, we've made flies in which the dopamine-producing cells are the ones that can be remotely controlled. And then we can shine light on the entire fly and on the dopamine cells in, in the fly's brain become active. And then we can look at the behavioral consequences of interfering with the function of these neurons. And since we are, we are no longer reliant on just observing responses that are elicited by external st- stimuli, we can also look at self-generated actions and influence those self-generated actions by messing with the activity of certain groups of cells in the brain. Does that mean that you could eventually have almost complete control of the fly? We don't have almost complete control over the fly. We can control various aspects of of its behavior. And, of course, depending on which aspects of the behavior, or which nerve cells we, we render sensitive to light, we can control different aspects of the behavior. So you see where this research is going, we are trying to find the neural underpinnings of specific types of behavior by turning neurons on and off and then seeing what the animal does or doesn't do. So let me give you some examples of the of the behaviors that, that we've looked at. First, just to demonstrate that this approach could work. So this was the, the first demonstration of this remote activation of, of a neural circuit in an intact animal and the active control of, a, of an animal's behavior. We looked at a relatively simple circuit, and that's a circuit that, that controls the escape behavior of the fly. Okay. So the escape behavior of a fly is it jumps into the air and it flies away. And that behavior is normally triggered by two out of the hundred thousand cells in the fly's brain, so-called command neurons, that then activate the jumping muscles and the flight motor. Okay. So we were able to find the genetic switch that would allow us to make those two command neurons light-sensitive. Then, as soon as the flies were illuminated, they jumped into the air and flew away. So this was the first example that one could actually do that. We've also looked at the role of dopamine cells, and they are involved in, in regulating the amount and the character of locomotion, so the exploratory behavior of flies. And we have recently controlled a set of neurons that is implicated in the expression of sexual behaviors. So there's a set of neurons, about 2,000 of the 100,000 cells, that express one particular gene and these neurons are thought to underlie mating behaviors and the whole courtship sequence that leads up to it. Now the interesting thing is that obviously the mating behaviors of the two sexes are quite different in males and in females. As in most animals it's the males who have to do a lot of the work. They have to go and impress the females. And in flies, they produce a mating call, a courtship song, like many other insect calls and bird songs, by vibrating in one wing. Only male flies do that, and only females seem to like the song so much that they allow males to copulate with them. But if you look at that circuit of, two th- of roughly 2,000 cells, you don't see a whole lot of differences between males and females. So the big question, of course, is, If the two sexes are built so similarly, if their neural equipment is the same, why is it that their behavior is so different? One way to get at this question was to try and turn the circuit on in females and see whether by doing that maneuver one could make them behave like males. So we did that experiment. So we put our optical sensor into these cells and we flashed the females and yes, they stuck out one wing and they started singing. So they display a the behavior that they normally would never show. To us, that has suggested that the male and the female brains are wired in a much more similar fashion than one would think, and that the mechanism that controls the expression of male or female specific behavior must involve a small subset of these cells. So there's a few, perhaps a few master switches that you set to male or female mode and then all the subordinate routines, all the motor programs follow from that. I think that does make sense if you think about how complex a problem it is to wire up a nervous system. If you had to find two separate solutions to build male and female brain it would complicate this task even further Um, whereas of course if you can build a unisex brain first and then after you're done flick a few switches and set them to either male or female mode. That might simplify the task substantially. Has it informed the research that you're continuing with now? Yes, of course. So we are trying to find what the the switches are. That would be the next to to really nail this hypothesis of of a largely unisex brain that's controlled in this manner by by a few selective switches. One would of course have to try and find these switches and manipulate them again. And where on the scale of complexity is the 100,000 cells of a fly's brain. One of the fathers of this whole field of trying to use genetics to understand brain function was a professor at Caltech, Seymour Benzer, who, who died last year. So he, when he started this whole field in, in the 1960s, he started to work with flies and he wrote in one of his early papers that the fly's brain is the midpoint on a logarithmic scale between a single cell, so this would be how it works, E. coli brain and the human brain. So one cell, that's 10 to the 0th power uh, neurons. The 100,000 is 10 to the 5th power. And the human brain is thought to contain 10 to the 11th power, over 100 billion neurons. So does that leave one to assume that the development of the human brain will also begin as a unisex brain? I don't know whether it extends all the way to the human brain. There is some evidence in, in a vertebrate that females also have routines that are usually considered male-specific, and that's recent work from Catherine Dulac's lab at Harvard showed that female mice, if you block pheromonal inputs by making a genetic mutation or by blocking access to that part of the nose that detects pheromonal cues, start to behave like males. So there is a latent capability of male behavior also in the female mouse brain. Just like there's a latent capability of male-like behavior in the female fly brain. Whether there's a latent capability of male behavior also in the female human brain, I don't know, but judging from some personal acquaintances, I think the answer is yes, and often it's not even so latent. Does your research have clinical application? I started medicine initially, but then I sort of, I, I ran from medicine as far as I possibly could. The two of us discovered quickly that we were not made for each other. So I think the, the test is always: if you, if a student or a physician in training, and you can't find the vein when you're trying to draw blood from a patient, who gets clammy palms first, the patient, who are you torturing, or you? And in my case, it was always me. So I, I never really practiced medicine. And my research is really aimed at, at understanding just fundamental principles of, of nervous system function. That said, of course, if there was a practical application that could benefit someone, I would not mind. I would, I would, I would certainly embrace it and love it. So I've, I think that some of the approaches that we have developed will actually be quite useful. Not useful in the immediate sense that, that you could use them to cure a disease in a more indirect way that you can use these tools to try and understand which neurons you have to target to control a specific behaviour. So um, your research can inform the basic model that someone could then apply to disease treatment. Exactly. So let's assume we study not the fly but a but mouse. We, we do the kind of work that we do at, at this point At this point, all of our experiments are are driven by a guiding hypothesis. So, we take a set of neurons that we think are important for a particular behavior, then we turn these neurons on and we see what happens. One could, of course, also do the same kind of approach in a completely open, forward-directed manner. You could breed a huge library of animals in which you could turn various sets of neurons on and just watch what happens. Now let's assume you have such a library, you turn those cells on and you see that some of the animals eat like crazy and get horribly overweight. And then you go back and you see which cells you've targeted. So that means you have found cells in the brain of these animals that regulate appetite. And obviously if you then could find ways to manipulate the activity of these cells selectively, that could be a very very powerful route into drug discovery right? so you could find, you could for instance look at what these cells are, what distinguishes them from others what kind of receptors they have, what you might what kind of cell you might be able to manipulate by classical chemical means you could screen drugs against these neurons for example or well, let's assume you find that another class of mice in which you do these interventions become insomniacs so if found sleep regulating cells, so again that would be a potential target for for drugs. There's also the, the still remote possibility that you could use these control interventions directly to influence the function of an excitable tissue. It's sort of like a, a cardiac pacemaker does for the heart. You could sensitize certain classes of cells, neurons, muscle cells, to light and then implant a the fiber optic cable and, and regulate the activity of these neurons. Okay, This could go from From the mundane, like you control the function of an incontinent sphincter muscle to the more advanced. For instance, people now do deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, where you actually stimulate the cells that that lie deep down in the brain. This is an exciting, but I think still quite remote and also somewhat overhyped possibility because you need to sensitize these neurons to light, and that requires that you put the foreign gene into the body. The track record of, of attempts at gene therapy is not good enough at the moment to really do that, except under extremely tightly regulated experimental conditions. In your own research, what are you hoping will be the next major discovery? I'm really interested in this problem of action choice. So, what I would really like to understand is how a simple agent, such as the fly, decides what to do next. You know, to, to understand action choice just at the level that Howard Berg understands whether the, the E. coli continues on its path or starts to look for another direction. So down really to the level of where you see the nuts and bolts of the system. You want to see the mechanism. You don't want to see just, oh, there's some electrical signal in the brain that sort of predicts what the animal will do in the next 100 milliseconds. That's, that's all very important, but it doesn't really tell you how, how, the, how the system works. My ambition would be to get to the point where you can really see how it all fits together and how, how the whole clockwork runs.